You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 44. Genesis 44. As we continue in our study of Genesis, we started out in Genesis 3. We didn't start at Genesis 1 and 2. I have a reason for that. One of these days I want to go through Genesis 1 and 2 and speak especially about creation because I want to prepare these youngsters that the Lord has been pleased to bring to us. I want to prepare them for college. (laughs) Uh, So I want to spend a good bit of time on that. And and actually what I intend to do with that, I intend to... um, uh, put together a, a, a curriculum out of Genesis 1 and 2 just for that reason. Uh, as our youngsters turn into teen monsters. Has anybody ever heard of a teen monster? I can tell by your laughter you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are those things from the uh, outer space or somewhere. I don't know where they come from, you know. Little Junior's great, and then he, he has a birthday, and then what a monster after that. Um, But at any rate, we want to put some curriculum together. I'd like to develop some curriculum that prepares um, our children for the onslaught that sometimes can happen in the university um, so that their legs aren't pulled out in front of them from and under them. There's no reason for that. The truth's on our side. So um, Genesis 44. Let's uh, begin with verse 1. We'll read through uh, the entire chapter. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be the Lord's servants. And he said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city." And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? Shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, 
Go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father and an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, so that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for he should leave his father. His father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Only one left, or one left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Heavenly Father, we look to you and we pray that you would instruct us this morning, that you would teach us from your word, that, Father, you would use our time this morning profitably, O oh Lord, for making us more and more like your son, Jesus. That, O oh Lord, we may be, as Paul puts it, equipped for every good work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been studying how the Lord is working in the hearts of Joseph's brothers, we have seen a few chapters ago how the Lord has forced them to face their sin. And we have been seeing changes in the lives of the brothers, haven't we? And uh, but one thing I want to point out here, and this is a place where we stand to make a big error, and I think it goes on a lot, is what we're seeing in these men up to Genesis 44 does indeed fall short of true repentance and saving faith. The reason I emphasize that is because a lot of times we get pretty excited when we begin to see changes in people's lives. And we say, well, look at the change in this person's life, and look at the change in this person's life, and look at the change in this person's life. And that's what we're seeing. We've been observing this in Joseph's brothers. 
But if our story ended at the end of chapter 43, they would fall short of saving faith and true repentance. In other words, they would fall short of salvation. So it's really important that we pay attention to chapter 44. Now, chapter 44 rests in a context. Context is very important, as I emphasize all the time. What is the context? Well, take a look back to the beginning of chapter 43. And again, let me remind you that the passages that we're studying belong to a larger passage, a larger context. And a lot of this is like, I know a lot of us love the beach. A lot of us love standing. Uh, you didn't know that Genesis 44 had everything to do with the beach, did you? Uh, it doesn't have everything to do with the beach, but what I'm trying to say, I think the beach gives us a great illustration of what's going on in the biblical text. You know, you stand there and you can watch the waves come in. And you can see that as you, as you watch the waves, you can see that there are indeed individual waves that are coming towards the shore. But there's also an interrelationship between those waves. And when we come to this passage, mind you, this morning what I want to do is really get on one or two of these waves. There's other waves that are taking place in our passage. And we're going to see that as we get on board of one wave, we're also going to recognize some other waves that we've been, uh, that we've been on um, earlier. Now, if that's, if that's not clear at all, just disregard it. Uh, but maybe that'll help somebody. It helps me. So in Genesis 43, we see that the famine, we're reminded that the famine was severe in the land. Now, this is just what Joseph had said. Remember, Pharaoh has his dream, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and Joseph says, listen, there's going to be seven years of good, and then following the seven years, there's going to be seven years of famine. It's going to be so severe that you're going to forget the good times. And in verse 2, we're told that they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt. Now, Jacob had already sent his brothers down, or his sons rather, Joseph's brothers, down to Egypt. They've made one trip. They've bought uh, grain. They've brought the grain back, and now the grain is gone. And Jacob wants them to send, wants to send his sons down for another trip. Notice that Judah is really starting to ascend here in many ways. Judah is now uh, in chapter 43, and in 44, we're going to see that Judah really is the spokesperson of the brothers. And Judah speaks up and he reminds Jacob, he says, Listen, the man solemnly warned us. That is Joseph, who is now prime minister of Israel or of Egypt. Uh, he warned them. He said to them, Listen, when you guys come back, I want you to bring Benjamin, the youngest son, with you. If you don't bring Benjamin with you, you will not see my face. In other words, you're not getting any grain. And in fact, if they come back without Benjamin, you remember they were accused of being spies. And Joseph gave them an ultimatum. You bring Benjamin back, you'll be vindicated of being spies, you can trade in the land. But you come back here with no Benjamin, well, what do you suppose is going to happen? Um, well possible incarceration or enslavement. These guys are, Judah says, listen, if you don't send Benjamin with us, we're not going back. We can't go back. Now, we, we spent some time on this last week. I mean, here Jacob is. Jacob is. Jacob is just like the rest of us. He wants to be in control of the situation. I know I'm supposed to send Benjamin, but I'm not going to send Benjamin. And Judah's reminding him and saying, listen, if you want saved from this famine, you're going to have to be saved this way, not your own way. And we made an application of that. If we want to find salvation, we've got to do it God's way, not our way, don't we? 
And that's it. Well, Judah, he eventually succumbs and surrenders. I'm sorry, um, Jacob eventually surrenders. It's only after Judah says to him, listen, if you look at verse 9, Judah says, I will be a pledge of his safety. Some of your translations will say surety. If you have an old King James, they use the word surety. I will be a surety of his safety or a pledge of his safety. In other words, what Judah is saying, listen, if I don't bring him back to here, then I'll bear the blame for it forever. Or I'll bear the blame for it for the rest of my life. And Jacob, he succumbs, he surrenders. And what's important for us to see here is that in verse 14, notice that as Jacob surrenders, he prays, may God Almighty grant you what? mercy before the man. And what I want to point out to you, because here's a wave. Just, just look out into the sea there a little bit, and you're going to see a wave. It's starting to, it's starting to show itself. That's the wave we're going to get on. We're going to paddle out and see if we can get on that wave. What I want to show you is that Jacob doesn't just surrender. He's not just surrendering to fate, to whatever might happen. He's just not surrendering blindly, but he's surrendering to the mercy of God. Do you see that in verse 14? He's surrendering to the mercy of God. Now in verse 15, the brothers are before Joseph, and we're told in verse 16 that when Joseph saw Benjamin... He said to the steward of his house, now the steward's going to play a role in chapter 44, an important role in chapter 44. Here his assignment is to prepare a meal. And what is Joseph up to? Well, he intends to invite his brothers to his house for a meal. Now, when these ten men discover that they're being invited to Joseph's house, are they excited about it? No, we're told in verse 18 that they're afraid. The men were afraid. Why? Because... They're being brought to Joseph's house. This is very unusual. Why are we being brought to his house? And you remember when they came down the first time to buy grain, they come back and discover that their money was still in the grain. In other words, they didn't pay for it. They went down and got all this grain. They come back and they hadn't paid for it. And all they could think of is this is about the money. He's going to assault us. He's going to seize us. And then I think last week I pointed out, and I still think it's pretty funny. They think that he wants their donkeys. Don't skip over that. I'm making fun of that. It's, it's funny. It is funny, but don't skip over it because I have a note here somewhere. Um, the, the note here, notice that they think that their stuff is just as valuable to Joseph as it is to them. In other words, their donkeys are very valuable to them, and therefore they think because their donkeys are very valuable to them, that Joseph also thinks they're equally as valuable. Think about how often we do that to the Lord. To us, our stuff is so valuable, you know. And we think because it's so valuable to us, it must be so valuable to the Lord. But here's the lesson. Do you think Joseph wants their donkeys? He's the second. I mean, when he rides around, he rides around in a chariot. He rides around in a motorcade. Do you think he wants... Ten donkeys, or however many donkeys there was. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. But what happens? What happens in the context of this? Joseph opens up his home. He brings them into his home. He gives them first-class hospitality. 
And the only thing that they can be thinking of is, what is up with this? We don't deserve this. And that's exactly right. They don't deserve this. And that's what we were talking about last week, is God's mercy. In other words, what these brothers need to understand, what they need to see next, they've faced their sin to some degree. They still have more work to do there, but they also must understand the mercy that's being offered to us in Christ Jesus. They have to see that because no one's going to come to God unless they realize that he is offering mercy. And that's primarily the lesson there. Now, when we get all the way down to the end in verse 34, I said a little bit about this last time. I want to say a little more about it uh, in, in, in preparation for chapter 44. But notice that while they're at the table, portions were taken from uh, taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. Now, what's up with that? Well, these characters have had some problems in the past with envy, haven't they? Namely, surrounding favored brothers. Now, who is Benjamin? Well, he's the favorite brother, isn't he? Used to be Joseph. What did he do to the last one? After they contemplated killing him, they eventually succumbed to selling him off into Egypt, into slavery. What's Joseph doing? He's testing them. Are they changing? Have they changed? Throw five times as much food on Benjamin's plate and let's see how they act. How do they act? They drank and were merry with him. Wow. You see what I'm talking about? There's been some major changes in these brothers. And just because we see major changes in them, let's not get to jumping up and down and crying salvation just yet. Because we're going to see they still have a ways to go. And actually, this whole thing could be train wrecked if we, if we yelled saved too soon, which happens all the time, every day. Now, we come to chapter 44, verse 1. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Okay, well, we've seen this before. Now there's going to be quite a bit of money in here. This is the second trip that they've made, and they brought back the money that they took with them on the first trip, and I'm assuming that what's going on here is that money is being put in the sack as well as the money that they brought down on the second trip is being put back in their sacks. So they're filling up their sacks. Now look at verse 2. Joseph says, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And the steward does just as Joseph told him. Now, as soon as morning was light, in other words, first light, now, these men have a long journey. I think scholar, I think I read somewhere it's about 250 miles. And it'd be a long trip on a donkey. That's a sizable trip in our cars. Um, so as soon as the uh, morning was, uh, was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now what's the steward do? Verse 6, off he goes. He overtakes them. 
And when he catches up with them, what does he say? Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this cup that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination. You've done evil in doing this. Now what do they say in response to that? Verse 7, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words to these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Let's stop right there for a moment. What are they saying? Have they stolen the cop? No. In fact, first they don't. What are you talking about? We haven't stolen a cop. But pay careful attention to what they're saying. They say, far be it from us to do such a thing. As to what? Steal a cop? So what you're saying, fellas, is you're not the kind of people that would do such a thing as steal a cop, right? No. No. We would never do that. Oh, okay. But you'll steal a brother. And you'll sell him into slavery. But you're not the kind of guys they'll steal a cop. You see what's going on here? What's going on here is they're pointing to one incident in their life in which they are innocent. And they're using that incident in their life to represent their whole life. And we do that all the time. Don't we? There's this one incident where we really are innocent. We didn't do it. They didn't steal the cop. You see, this whole thing's a setup, isn't it? They didn't steal the cop. We're not the kind of people that would steal a cop, really? Really? Okay. All right. Let me remind you, if Joseph would have just let them go, where would these guys be? Shine them themselves back up pretty good, aren't they? It's a good thing Joseph didn't do that. Notice their argument. Their argument is really sound. They have a great argument. They're being accused of stealing a cop. What do they say? We're not the kind of guys that would do that. Verse 8, Behold, the money that was found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? That's a good argument. Why is it such a good argument? Because thieves usually don't return what they steal, do they? You know, if you're a thief and you're at the bank and the teller gives you more money than you have asked for, you don't say anything. In fact, you leave thinking, well, it's her mistake and that's my gain. If you do that, you're a thief. Or as an honest person says, wait a second, there's a mistake. You've given me too much. Or if you're at the checkout line and someone gives you too much change, if you're a thief, you take it. You don't return it. Now, they're saying, listen, you gave us too much money at the checkout aisle. In fact, you gave us all of our money back. You've made a mistake. And we brought it back to you. Shouldn't that prove that we're not thieves? Well, normally that would prove you're not a thief. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Notice what they say in verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Notice what they're saying. They're not really thinking, but they're shocked. Obviously, they're shocked. They're not thinking this through, but they're so confident of their innocence in this. They're saying, listen, if you find a cup in one of our sacks, whoever's sack it is, he shall die, and the rest of us shall be enslaved to you forever. That's what they're saying. I say they're not thinking this through because 
It's funny to see how the food's going to get back to their family if they don't take it back. They're not thinking this through. But notice the steward, very calm, cool, collected. He has to be in on this, by the way, the steward, doesn't he? I mean, think about that. The steward's in cahoots, man. He's in cahoots. He has to be in cahoots. He has to know because he knows his master. The steward knows Joseph to be a righteous man. And here this is clearly a setup and he's in on it. He's got to know. And I think he does know. And the reason I think he does know is because Joseph told the cupbearer when he's incarcerated what happened to him, didn't he? And if he'll tell the cupbearer while he's incarcerated, someone he doesn't hardly know, how much more would he say to someone who he spent all this time with? I think the steward knows. I think the steward got these guys. I think the steward knows. I think he's in on it. He said... Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So he's not going to go along with that. He goes, no, 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 no. We're not going to, this is not a capital crime here. No one's going to die. But whoever has the silver cup, whoever the silver cup's coming back with me and he's going to be detained. The rest of you are going to be free to go. Well, in verse 11, the men quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Here they go from the older to the younger again, like they were seated at the table, and they were all amazed. Remember when they were seated at the table, they were seated oldest to the youngest. And it had to have created an atmosphere like, I don't know who I'm in the presence of here, but whoever I'm in the presence of here knows me like the back of my hand. Oh yeah, you better believe he does. So oldest, Reuben, you're first. Lower your sack. And Reuben lowers his sack, and he opens it up. And what do they find in it? Well, the first thing they find is a bunch of money. Can you imagine how awkward that is? They've just said they're not thieves. They've said they've returned the money, and here they are carrying out yet another load of grain out of here, and there's all the money. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? It would also be a reminder of God's grace, wouldn't it? how wonderful God is to us when we are so undeserving. But they root through the sack. They root through Reuben's sack. There's no cup. No cup. Simeon, you're next. Levi, you too. Judah, you're next. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun. No silver cup. If you look at the end of verse 12, Benjamin's turn. What do we got here? You know, they probably been thinking, we're good to go. I mean, if there's anybody going to do it, if we make our way all the way to Zebulun, we're good. It's never going to be Benjamin. They probably thought, we're out of it. All of a sudden, Benjamin's sack comes down. They open it up. They root around in it. What do they find? Silver cup. Can you imagine the butterflies in their stomachs when they pull out this cup? They are in trouble, trouble, trouble. And even though (laughs) they're a short distance out of the city, in verse 13, they tear their clothes and they return to the city. Even though that's a short distance, I bet that was one long ride back to the city. Now, in verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell before him to the ground. Notice there they are falling before him to the ground. I wouldn't make an application of this to Joseph's dreams. Not here. Remember how the brothers have been prostrate a couple on a couple of occasions before Joseph, and I made the application. Joseph had the dreams. Remember the dreams? The sheaves standing up, one sheaf bowing, or uh, one sheaf rising up, the other sheaves bowing down. 
and the sun and the moon, the 11 stars bowing down. I wouldn't make that application here because in previous times they bowed down before Joseph, but they did so in honor. This is different. What are they doing here? They're bowing down before his mercy. They want and need his mercy. There they fall prostrate before him. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? I need to say something about this. It's happened twice, verse 5 and then right here. This idea of Joseph practicing divination. The commentaries, there's a lot, been a lot of ink spilled about that over the years. And some writers, some writers say that Joseph, you know, he has succumbed to the, the, uh, the, the, the customs of Egypt and, you know, that his status now has run to his head a little bit and he's kind of falling into sin here and practicing this ancient uh, form of what they used to call hydromancy where they would take a cup and they put certain liquids in it they would toss objects in it and they would they would study the patterns and use that to try to uh, foretell the future and that Joseph has fallen to this and he's begun to do this and that's the practice of the nation and some writers fall down and or some writers will come down on that position but other writers say no no he has not done that this is all part of the ruse I take the second interpretation of this. I think it's all part of the game. It's all part of the test. Uh, Joseph is indeed uh, acting the part, just like the steward is acting the part. Because we find Joseph being so faithful, don't we? Every step of the way here. Had Joseph been exalted when he was 17 years old to the, to the right hand of Pharaoh, then yes. But Joseph has been prepared for years, hasn't he? 13 years of terrible suffering has prepared him for this. Um, no, I, I don't think. I think it's all part of the ruse. But Judah, Judah again is the spokesperson. What does Judah say? Verse 16 is so important. What happens in verse 16 is the difference between life and death. Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now what guilt could Judah be talking about? The silver cup? Hardly. They know they're innocent of that. They don't know how it got in the bag, but they know they didn't steal it. So what's he talking about? He's talking about selling his brother off in slavery. He's coming clean. He's coming clean. And what is he willing to do? Listen. We're all my Lord's servants. Both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. What is he doing? Is he willing to leave Egypt without his brother? No. He would have 20 years ago with little thought. Is he willing to do it now? Mm -mm. If you're going to take one of us, you take all of us. You take all of us. This is repentance. This is true repentance. It's total dependence on mercy, you see. It's such a difference with saying, hey, we're not these kind of guys here. You think we're the kind of guys that would steal a silver cup? Notice the transition. The Lord has found us out. We've tried to keep this a secret. We've tried to keep this penned up. We've tried to live and exist as if our sin doesn't exist. The fact is it does. And the fact is, God knows it all. 
And the fact is we're going to have to give an account for it. And the fact is we can't. We can't. These men can't. And neither can anyone in this room, including the speaker. I can't give an account for my sin before the straight edge of God's holy perfection. We say, well, God will judge us on a curve. No, he won't. No, he won't. That's the biggest lie. That's a horrible lie. Our God is just. His justice is perfect. We are going to have to give an account for every thought, word, and deed which is sinful, which we have committed every five minutes of our entire lives. And if that's the case, it's, blessed, it's, ble it's more blessed not to live as long as it is to live long, isn't it? Because the longer you live, the more you got to give an account for. All, Joseph, all Judah can do here is fall down at the mercy. That's all he can do. Now the steward wouldn't accept that, verse 17. The steward said, far be it from me that I should do so. He says, no. What Judah's doing is recounting what happened outside of the city. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found should be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Well, they're not willing to do that now, are they? They've repented and they're keeping in repentance. They can't walk that way no more. You see, they could while they were headed out of town. But something has happened, hasn't it? Verse 18, Then Judah went up with him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. Notice the, the honor he's asking. Judah is asking for Joseph's audience and for his patience. And he says, My Lord asked his servants, verse 19, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we answered you, verse 20, We have a father. We have a young brother, child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, verse 21, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Verse 24, When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down unless our youngest brother goes with us. Then we'll go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, and now what Judah's doing is he's recounting what his father said to him. And these are words that Joseph is not aware of. Listen to what he says. He says, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. Uh, stop right there. Because I am really surprised at the narrative here, that this isn't another one of those places where Joseph says, listen, time out. I've got to go weep. We've had a number of those, haven't we? Why do I say that? Because all these years, Joseph doesn't know how his father reacted to his disappearance until right now. What is my, what, it has to have been something that was on his heart all the time. What did my father think happened to me? 
He sent me out to check on my brothers and I never come back. What does my father think? Does he think I'm alive? Does he think I'm dead? Well, now he, for the first time, hears how his father reacted to his disappearance. He's been torn by wild beasts. Verse 29, Judah continues. If you take this one also for me. Now again, Jacob is still speaking. Judah is quoting his father. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, why is Judah sharing this? Because he cares about his dad. Major change. Verse 30, Judah continues. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant has become a pledge of safety for the boy. See what, See what Judah is doing here? In the last chapter, he said, listen, I will be a surety for him. I will be a pledge for him. If I don't bring him back, I will bear the guilt. And Judah is making good on his promise, isn't he? What is Judah saying here? He's saying, listen, I promised my dad that I would bring him back. And if I do not bring him back, I tell you, I shall bear the blame before my father on my life. Now, therefore, verse 33, please take your servant. Let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Unbelievable. Judah is saying, listen, take me. Why? Because of love for his father. Judah, this, think about this for a minute, what Judah is doing here. Judah is taking the place of Benjamin because Judah realizes his father loves Benjamin more than him. He realizes that his father would be more upset over the loss of Benjamin than he's going to be over the loss of himself. Now, why do I point that out to you? Because Judah is laying his life down for someone who doesn't love him perfectly. Does that sound familiar? Has anybody ever heard of someone who would lay down their life for someone who doesn't love them perfectly? We sure have, haven't we? In fact, that's the best construction we could put on it. Jesus lays his life down for people who hate him. We were born into this life not being indifferent to Jesus. We were born in this life hating him. He died for people who hate him so that he could win the hearts of those who hate him so that we would love him. Do you love Jesus this morning? Do you love Jesus? Does he want your heart? Judah, where is Judah? He's at the feet of Joseph's mercy. And he says in verse 34, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What is the lesson here? Mercy. Where, where do we find ourselves this morning? Do we find ourselves outside of the city? Do we find ourselves this morning looking at some place in our life where we're shined up pretty good and pointing to that and making that representative of our entire lives? Or have you come to the place where you understand your sinful condition before God 
And all you could do is cast yourself to his mercy. Don't brush that off as a trivial question. That is not a trivial question. That is the most important question you will ever answer. Because the difference, if these men would have simply rode off from here, they would have rode off as unsaved men, wouldn't they? Do you see how important it is for us to study this together? Because when we tell people who seem to be changing, if we tell them too early that they're in a state of salvation, we could be sending them out of the city prematurely. You see the pastoral danger of this? And that's, that's why churches are filled with people who haven't really full, fully come to faith in Christ. And now you, you, try the, you start the process of discipling people who aren't even really truly believers. Discipleship comes after evangelism. Evangelism comes first. Unless we're in Christ Jesus, we do not have the faculty to follow him. We don't. And if you haven't come to the place where you've cast yourself down to his mercy, you haven't truly come to him. Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you can touch one sound spot in your life, you're a lost person. And that was his way of saying this. That's what these guys were doing. Far be it from us to do such a thing. Do you think we're the kind of people who do such a thing? Without God's common grace, do you realize that we're capable of doing anything? Have you come to that conclusion about yourself? It gives me no pleasure to say these things. And everything I say to you, I'm saying to myself. But has God brought you to the place to where you've cast yourself upon his mercy and said, Lord, I, I'm lost unless I find mercy in you. I am destroyed. And if you've done that, you've discovered that he is willing to welcome you, hasn't he? That's amazing grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Father, for the instruction that we find in this text. There's so much pastoral instruction in this text, Father. And it's not just instruction for those of us who are pastors, but instruction for all of us who want to help. Father, help us, O oh Lord, to see these things and to be wise as we minister to people who are around us, that we would be just cautious about yelling saved too early before people have really dealt fully with their sin and have cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, help us, O oh Lord. And oh, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to come to that place, who have, who have ridden out of the city and they're on their way out of the city, and they're saying to themselves, oh, far, far be it for me to be that kind of person. Salvation is only for those who are that kind of person. It's only for sinners. It's only for those who have recognized that we need a Savior. And oh, Father, we thank you that you have given us mercy in Christ Jesus. We thank you so much for the salvation that you have given us. That when we open up our sacks, we see treasures in them treasures that we do not deserve, and all those treasures are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, O oh Father, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.